Hello everybody and welcome to a podcast of Biblical Proportions. Episode 59. Never trust a pharaoh. One day in Egypt, Yahweh calls on the Hebrews to worship him in the desert. But the pharaoh is standing in their way. The pharaoh will not let them leave. It is then that Yahweh launches a series of magical attacks against Egypt. This conflict could have been over rather quickly were it not for the pharaoh's extreme unreliability. Over and over again, the pharaoh says the Hebrews can go to the desert if Yahweh removed this or that plague from the land of Egypt, only for the pharaoh to repeatedly go back on his word. Or as the story says, he hardens his heart. He hardens his heart over and over again. The pharaoh's unreliability is a central element of the story of the Exodus plagues. In fact, it's his fickleness that moves the story forward. He can't keep his promises, so the plagues have to keep on coming. Until Egypt is laid in ruin. We've discussed in the past how the Exodus pharaoh is a stand-in for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at the time the story was written. But no one that we know of saw him as fickle. So why is the stand-in so patently fickle? Could history provide an answer? At the time the Exodus plagues were written, there were two empires vying for regional supremacy. Babylonia and Egypt. It's Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon who did the sacking and the destroying of Judea. But Egypt and its pharaoh played a leading role in the fall of Jerusalem and the subsequent captivity. The Hebrews blamed Egyptian unreliability for their calamity. We look to history before to provide us with answers, and we should do so again in this episode. Because to understand why the Exodus pharaoh keeps hardening his heart, we need to look to the unreliable pharaoh that gave the Hebrews up to Nebuchadnezzar. Let's dive in. I want to thank Leora, Ken, and Stephen for joining our tribe on patreon.com slash biblical proportions. Welcome. Hi everybody, this is Gil. Thank you for listening. I've been looking for an opportunity to dig a little deeper into the animosity Hebrews have felt towards the actual Pharaoh and the actual Egypt of their day, and specifically of Babylonian times. When the Babylonian army came over, destroyed Judea, and forced thousands of Hebrews to live in the Babylonian captivity. The Pharaoh in Egypt didn't destroy Judea, didn't burn Jerusalem, and didn't exile the Hebrews. 
but they sure played a major part in making all this happen. The pharaoh at the time was known as Necho II. And he was neither the first nor the last pharaoh that many Hebrews from different periods saw as fickle. They even have very cool expressions to describe this fickleness. And I think that the real-life fickleness of several pharaohs is the inspiration for the fickleness of the Exodus pharaoh. The captivity in Egypt, the pharaoh's vanity, those seem to be inspired by Nebuchadnezzar. But the fickleness, that has to come from somewhere else, from someone else. All that anyone can draw inspiration from is the world. Once we zeroed in on the authors and the world they lived in, all that is left to do to better understand their texts is learning all we can about their world. Good fiction is never arbitrary, opaque, vague, or nondescript. Fiction is written for an audience. An audience that is meant to understand and to engage with the story. This is not intended to be undecipherable or seven steps removed from reality. The story of the plagues was written during an intensely dramatic time. And it is this drama that created this story. For us, it might be drama. For the people living through it, this was a disaster of epic proportions. And in this episode, we'll focus on Egypt and the pharaoh's role in this disaster. And one of the victims of this disaster was a little-known Hebrew priest called Yechezkel, Ezekiel. Ezekiel wrote a lot. His text can be found in the book that bears his name, the book of Ezekiel, and in Exodus. He wrote the original layer of the book of Exodus. He wrote the original plagues. He had seven plagues out of the ten we have today. He wrote between the 590s BCE, just after the year 600 BCE, and he wrote for about 25 years. And during those 25 years, Yechezkel poured into his writings his trauma, frustration, and anger. Ezekiel lived in a bipolar world. You were either with Babylonia or with Egypt. And at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, Egypt was resurgent under the ambitious pharaoh Necho II. Literature is not math. Fictional characters can draw inspiration from several real people. So the Exodus pharaoh is mostly inspired by Nebuchadnezzar, but I think one facet of the pharaoh, his unreliability, that is inspired by the pharaoh Necho and the well-known Egyptian trademark of being fickle. No matter the setting of a story, people always write about their world 
and how they perceive it. And the world of Ezekiel is, for us, history. So in this episode, we'll focus on history. And at the conclusion of the episode, once we got into the mindset of the audience, we'll go back to the fecal pharaoh of Exodus to see if the story feels different then, if it's more engaging, more compelling, now that we have its context or supposed context. But one important note before we dive in, in the Exodus story of the 10 plagues that we have in our Bibles today, there are a couple of instances where Yahweh himself actively hardens the Pharaoh's heart after the Pharaoh agrees to let the Hebrews go. These instances are in the second and third layer of Exodus. They are not part of Ezekiel's original story. To remind you, we can see the different layers thanks to the documentary hypothesis. So Ezekiel, he is what scholars call the J-source, most of it. So we can read this layer separately, and we find out that this J-source is actually Ezekiel. And our story for today is his version of the plagues. Ezekiel's version has seven plagues, and each plague is a back and forth in Yahweh's attempts to convince the Pharaoh to release the Hebrews so they can go to the desert to worship him. Even once he's convinced and agrees, he goes back on his word. That's our story for today. The conclusion of the story is not just that the Hebrews get to leave to the desert, but that the Pharaoh gets humiliated. And it might not correspond with theology, but in terms of literature, in Ezekiel's version of the plagues, the main character, the most fleshed out character, the character that has an arc, that's the Pharaoh, the Exodus Pharaoh. He is the antagonist, but he is the main character of the story. And one of his main attributes is that you can't trust him. He is deeply unreliable. And this unreliability is the reason Egypt is destroyed by Yahweh. It didn't have to be so. So, why would anyone want to destroy Egypt? Hmm. Let's begin in 701 BCE. start our historical journey 100 years before the time of Yechezkel, because the Egyptian brand was already tarnished and associated with extraordinary unreliability long before Ezekiel was born. Ezekiel started writing Exodus in the 590s BCE, now we are in 701 BCE. The 700s BCE were Assyrian times, and Egypt wanted to change that. They wanted to be the empire, and the plan was to recruit some petty kings within the Assyrian empire and get them to stop paying taxes to Assyria. 
And when you don't send your taxes to Assyria, that is what the Assyrians considered rebellion. And a sort of formal invitation to the Assyrian military to come over, destroy everything and kill everybody. One of these petty kings who formed a grand alliance with Egypt against the Assyrian Empire was the Judean king Hezekiah, Hezekiah. One might ask, why in the name of Yahweh would Hezekiah send a formal invitation to the Assyrian military to come over, destroy everything and kill everybody? Hmm. Well, he was counting on Egyptian military assistance to fight off the Assyrian military and thus prevent the whole destruction and killing of everything and everybody. That was the deal and that was the plan. The reason that Hezekiah agreed to enter into conflict with Assyria was because he leaned on military assistance by Egypt. What happens next, though, is that the Assyrians responded to the invite by coming over, destroying everything, and killing everybody. They laid waste to 46 Judean cities. The promised Egyptian military assistance never came, and the Egyptian military was nowhere to be seen. And the last city to remain was Jerusalem in the year 701 BCE. The Bible recounts three mostly similar accounts of the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem. And all these accounts are awesome. The highlight is the Assyrian general roasting Yahweh, okay, <laughs> saying that all the people they killed in the region had the protection of their God. And the Assyrians always destroyed everything and killed everybody. So why are you counting on your God to be any different? We won't get into this roast in this episode. I'm sure we'll have opportunities down the road. We want to focus on the second roasting. Okay, there are two roasts during this siege. And we're focusing on the roasting of the Egyptians and those who lean on them. We want to know why the Exodus story of the plagues has a pharaoh who can't keep his word. So let me read you parts of the book of Two Kings, chapter 18. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Lachish is a town just south of Jerusalem. There was a ferocious siege laid on Lachish, and it is the only place in the world where archaeologists found remnants of the Assyrian siege ramp. I've been to Lachish, it's fantastic. I talked a little bit about my visit there in a tribe-only episode on patreon.com slash biblicalproportions. Anyway, let me go back to the story. So the Assyrian military is camped out outside the walls of Jerusalem for all to see. There are soldiers on the walls 
and the Assyrian field commander is calling at them, yelling. Everyone can hear him. He's roasting the Hebrew king and Egypt, and he's doing it in Hebrew so that everybody listening can understand. The Hebrew officials ask him, please speak in Aramean. <laughs> That's the diplomatic language of the time. No. This is psychological warfare. He wants everybody in Jerusalem to know why they are all going to die and who is to blame for it. This is directed at King Hezekiah. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt. Egypt is a staff made of a broken reed that pierces the skin of anyone who leans on it. Such is the Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who depend on him. Fantastic roasting. <laughs> so I want to go back to this expression by the Assyrian field commander about Egypt. The staff made of a reed cane. In Hebrew, it's a beautiful expression that we still use today when you're talking about someone you cannot trust, you cannot lean on. Mishenet kane ratzutz. So mishenet today means backrest, like the backrest of your chair. And this backrest is made of broken reeds, so you can't lean on it. But to prepare for the story, I learned that in ancient times, mishenet meant something else. It meant a cane, a walking stick, a staff. And you need to be able to lean on it. And the Assyrian general dubs Egypt a walking cane made of a broken reed. And reeds are basically like hollow and extremely brittle as they are. You cannot use reed for a staff, a cane. They will break. And Egypt is even broken to begin with. And it pierces your hand <laughs> as you try to lean on it. And this stuck because Ezekiel and others will also use the expression of a walking stick made of a reed cane for Egypt. Mishenet kane. So... This is very powerful branding right there in 701 BCE, 100 years before Babylonian times. The Assyrians wanted all the petty kingdoms to know that they should never rely on Egypt. Just pay your taxes and shut the hell up. The Judeans survived the 701 BCE siege. No thanks to Egypt. Assyrians had somewhere else to be, slash there was a miracle by Yahweh. Anyway, Hezekiah got to live in exchange of all the gold he could take out of Jerusalem and detach from the Jerusalem temple. On top of the taxes he owed. 
slash it was a miracle. And herein lay the problem. The Hebrews certainly remembered these events very well, but for the wrong reasons. They forgot Egypt's unreliability and attributed the fact that Jerusalem was not destroyed to a miracle, divine miracle defense by Yahweh. Yahweh saved them before, and he would save them again. There was a precedent, 701 BCE. Everybody saw the Assyrian military laying siege to Jerusalem. And everybody knows that the Assyrians never left a siege without sacking the city, you know, to pay for the trouble of making them come over. And here, one day, the Assyrians weren't laying siege to Jerusalem anymore. Where did they go? Ah, Yahweh saved us. Who needs Egypt when you have Yahweh? And so we get to the time of Yechezkel, Nebuchadnezzar, and Necho. And to another Judean king who would ally himself with Egypt and lean on it to protect it when the Babylonian war machine came over. How reliable would Egypt prove itself to be this time around? Now we jump to the year 609 BCE. The Assyrian Empire lies in ruins, and Babylonia and Egypt are fighting to control its lands. The contested area is the Levant, from modern eastern Turkey of today all the way down to the borders of Africa. And we are focusing on the little land bridge that connects Asia and Africa, because that's where Judea is. Both Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia and his rival, the pharaoh Necho of Egypt, both of them want control of this region. It's been about a thousand years, give or take, since the last golden age of Babylonia and Egypt. And both wanted to stand on top of the dominant empire of the ancient world. And so Necho took his armies into the Levant and recruited several petty kings to do the whole stop paying taxes and I'll help you when there's a war deal. Hmm? Several petty kings wanted in on this deal with Egypt and the pharaoh Necho. In the petty kingdom of Judea, though, since the demise of the evil Assyrians, there was a great hope of renewing the Hebrew glory days. And they even took on a few regional military conquests, tiny as they were. The Judean petty king at the time he wanted to be a real king, not a puppet for an empire. Because who needs to lean on empires when you can lean on Yahweh? The name of this ambitious Judean petty king was Yoshiyahu, Josiah. Josiah was a true religious leader. He wasn't an opportunist. He wasn't cynical. 
which is probably why Neho wanted to get rid of him. Josiah should not have trusted the pharaoh. The pharaoh is not to be trusted. Neho invited Josiah for a sit-down and then had him killed on the spot. From time immemorial till today, when you invite someone for a sit-down, be it an ally or an enemy, there is an implicit promise that no harm will be done to you as a guest. But like the pharaoh from Assyrian times, the pharaoh Necho was fickle. He asked Josiah to meet and then assassinated him. That happened in 609 BCE. The Hebrew dream of restoring their glory days was gone. And then the pharaoh Necho went on to choose the successor to the Judean throne. And he even flip-flopped about the succession until the choice fell on a person called Yehoiakim. Yehoiakim was chosen specifically in order to be part of the Egyptian alliance against Nebuchadnezzar and Babylonia. He was chosen to lead Judea to a conflict with Babylonia. And those choices were made by the pharaoh, Necho. So the Hebrews were forced to lean on Egypt. But four years later, in 605 BCE, the pharaoh Necho was soundly beaten by Nebuchadnezzar in the battle of Karkamish, and he ran back home to safeguard Egypt's borders. And he didn't want to fulfill his side of the deal and come to the help to all the petty kings he forced to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Now Nebuchadnezzar wanted to replace those kings with his own people, who will not rebel. So all those little petty kingdoms had to pay a price for the pharaoh Necho's fickleness and unreliability. They had a deal. So what? In episode 58, we read Ezekiel's account of So What Happened Next. It was coded as an attack by Gog from the land of Magog. He was writing about the Babylonian attack. So let me read it again so we can better appreciate the experience that were the inspiration for Ezekiel's writings. Experiences that the audience shared as well. So this is a description of the Nebuchadnezzar-led invasion on the way to Jerusalem. He and his horde, he, that's Nebuchadnezzar, he and his horde came down from the north, advancing like a storm, like a cloud covering the land. He invaded a land of unwalled villages, attacked a peaceful and unsuspecting people. He plundered and looted the land. The pharaoh did not keep his word or fulfill his side of the deal. 
he had already betrayed Josiah, flip-flopped on the successor, and now he left the Hebrews to face Babylonia alone. The year was 597 BCE, and the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem. Death was on their doorstep. Actually, it was death that saved Jerusalem from being destroyed right then and there. It would survive for 10 more years because death came to the rescue. The death of the chosen Judean king, Jehoiakim. He was part of the Grand Alliance with Egypt. And he was succeeded by his 8-year-old boy with his mother as regent. The boy king's name was Yehoiachin, meaning Yahweh will prepare. And what Yahweh prepared for thousands of Hebrews was a life in captivity in Babylonia. With the person who entered the alliance with Egypt dead, the queen regent made the solid choice to surrender herself and thousands of other Hebrews to live the remainder of their lives in Babylonian captivity. Thousands of Hebrews whose lives were ruined because of Egyptian unreliability. It was the Pharaoh who assassinated Josiah. It was the Pharaoh who orchestrated the Judean rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar by placing his own Judean king to rebel against him. This was done with the promise that the Pharaoh will send military assistance, without which the Judeans had no chance. But Neho's heart hardened. So Nebuchadnezzar took captive the boy King Jehoiachin, his mother, the entire court, thousands of Hebrew workers, and also priests. A specific priest taken at that time was Ezekiel, in 597 BCE. Ezekiel claims he started prophesying five years into the captivity, meaning in 592 BCE. Around that time, Nebuchadnezzar had placed on the petty throne of Judea his own puppet king, a man called Tzidkiyahu, Zedekiah. Necho was replaced by a different pharaoh, and that pharaoh continued meddling in Judean affairs. And soon after that, Tzidkiyahu joined another Egyptian alliance against the Babylonians, but thankfully backed off under threat of total destruction. Then came a different pharaoh, and he was able to push Tzidkiyahu and Judea again into conflict with Babylonia in exchange for military support. That would never come, because the pharaoh never keeps his side of the deal. Nebuchadnezzar, unlike the pharaoh, was a man of his word, and so he destroyed Judea, sacked Jerusalem, burned the temple of Yahweh, and took thousands more Hebrews to live the remainder of their lives in captivity. He murdered Tzidkiyahu's family before him, 
gouging out his eyes and taking him to live a miserable life in captivity. That was in 587 BCE. We've seen four times in 100 years, four pharaohs striking a deal with the Hebrews and not keeping their word, and then backing off of it. You know, Egypt took a hit from Babylonia, but it wasn't destroyed, and Egyptians weren't taken captive. That happened to the Hebrews, to Ezekiel. He suffered because of Egyptian unreliability. And he writes about it in his diary, also known as the Book of Yechezkel. Whereas Yechezkel never dared to write anything negative about Nebuchadnezzar directly, always resorted to code. There was no need for codes when it came to Egypt. When it came to writing about Egypt, there was complete freedom of speech to hate on it as much as you wanted. So let's see what Ezekiel writes in his diary about the Pharaoh and Egypt. And let's see if he wants Yahweh to take revenge. In the 10th year of the exile, in the 10th month, on the 12th day, the word of Yahweh came to me. So I'm not an expert in Hebrew dating, so I might be wrong here because I couldn't find anybody mentioning what I'm going to mention now. Ezekiel starts writing about Egypt, prophesizing its destruction in the 10th year of the exile, that's 587 BCE, in the 10th month of the 12th day. Jerusalem was destroyed in the 10th month of that year, a few days before the 12th day. The actual date is somewhat disputed. But maybe Ezekiel is writing this as he learns of the fate of Jerusalem and Judea. All hope the Hebrew captives in Babylonia had of Yahweh bringing them back to Judea was lost. Their homeland was gone. All they had left were fantasies of revenge. So I'm combining now parts from Ezekiel chapters 29 and 30. This is a message from Yahweh, supposedly. I am against you, Pharaoh king of Egypt, you great monster lying in the Nile, thinking it belongs to you. I will put hooks in your jaws and will put you out from the Nile, with all the fish sticking to your scales, and I will leave you in the desert. I'm reading this as the Pharaoh being unwilling to get his ass out of Egypt. He didn't come out of Egypt to help Judea. So Yahweh will put hooks on him and bring him out forcefully and dump him in the desert. You will die in the open field and not be gathered or picked up. I will give you as food to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky. 
you remember in episode 58, the prophecies about Nebuchadnezzar, a.k.a. Gog of the land of Magog, they were almost identical. And now Ezekiel says this about the Pharaoh, bringing back the Assyrian branding about Egypt. Yahweh is talking to Egypt and the Pharaoh. You have been a walking stick made of reed for the people of Israel. Mishenet Kane. When they grasped you with their hands, you splintered. When they leaned on you, you broke and their backs were wrenched. Fickle motherfucking Pharaoh. Everybody knows Pharaohs are fickle. All who have counted on Egypt have fallen. Therefore I will bring a sword against you and kill both man and beast. I will lay waste to the land and everything in it. And this is what would happen to Egypt in Exodus. Mm, so revenge fantasies are a way to balance the injustice by imagining cosmic justice. Ezekiel does it tit for tat. He wishes on Egypt what happened to Judea. I will put an end to Egypt by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his army, the most ruthless of nations, will be brought in to destroy Egypt. They will draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. And Ezekiel even evokes again his image of the Babylonian horde covering the land like a shadow from a cloud. The city of Tachpanes will grow dark and Egypt will be covered with clouds and villagers will be taken to captivity. And in one part, Ezekiel says Egypt will be populated by foreigners, which was what happened to the kingdom of Israel and Judea. And he also says, like here, that the Egyptians will be taken captive, which also happened to the Hebrews. And later he writes that Egypt will become a desolate wasteland, where the foot of neither man nor beast will pass Egypt. No one will live there for 40 years. 40 years means a very, very long time. So it bears mentioning that none of this ever happened. This is merely revenge fantasy, written in the format of a religious prophecy. As if Yahweh is promising that this will happen. It did not. But Ezekiel really wanted all of this to happen, to bring Egypt and the Pharaoh to justice. Ezekiel details which cities in Egypt will be destroyed and how the Egyptians will suffer and experience the same fear that the Hebrews felt when Nebuchadnezzar did all of this to their land and their cities. And Ezekiel fantasizes that the Egyptian worship in the temple of Memphis will be terminated, like the Hebrew worship in the Jerusalem temple was terminated. And Ezekiel also gets very specific 
writes a lot about the pain and humiliation the Pharaoh will feel when Yahweh will break both his arms. It's a very long diary entry that tells a lot about Ezekiel. He was really angry at Egypt and the Pharaoh. And it comforted him to imagine breaking the fecal Pharaoh and punishing his fecalness by destroying everything in Egypt and killing everybody. So let me conclude Ezekiel's diary with this. Egypt will no longer be a reliable power for the people of Israel. Who will remember the mistake of turning to Egypt for help? So now that we know how Egypt and the Pharaoh screwed the Hebrews over and over again, and now that we know that after a few very close calls, it all ended with calamity for the Hebrews. I want us to go back to the Exodus plague story by Ezekiel, the original plague story. Ezekiel and his audience, they live in Babylonia under the evil king Nebuchadnezzar. And they wish Babylonia and Egypt Ill. Let me read the relevant parts of the Exodus plagues. It starts with Yahweh's message to the Pharaoh. Mm. So this is fiction inspired by reality, a revenge fantasy. Let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. With a staff in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be turned into blood. The fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink water. And it concludes with the Pharaoh's heart hardening. Then comes the plague of frogs. And the Pharaoh then summoned Moses and Aharon. Ask Yahweh to take the frogs away from me and my people, the Pharaoh says. And I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to Yahweh. So Moses agrees. They have a deal and Moses is very polite and he tells the Pharaoh, you choose when the frogs will be gone from your land. Tomorrow, the Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it will be as you say so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials, and your people. They will remain in the Nile. After Moses and Aharon left the Pharaoh, Moses cried out to Yahweh about the frogs he had brought on the Pharaoh. And Yahweh did what Moses asked. The Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron. Motherfucking fickle Pharaoh. We had a deal. We had a deal. So then the plague of flies hits Egypt. 
And there's total devastation. And the Pharaoh wants to negotiate. He says to Moses and Aaron, go worship your God here in the land of Egypt. But Moses said, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer Yahweh our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to Yahweh our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to Yahweh your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to Yahweh. And tomorrow the swarms of flies will leave the Pharaoh and his officials and his people. And then he adds, Only let the Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to Yahweh. Deceitful Pharaoh. Then Moses left the Pharaoh and prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh did what Moses asked. The flies left the Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also the Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Again! He can't help himself, this Pharaoh. Chronically fickle and untrustworthy. And for what? Does he think that Yahweh will not punish him and Egypt for this fickleness? Ay, ay, ay. Then Yahweh kills all the livestock animals with pestilence, including horses and donkeys and camels and cattle and sheep and goats. Ezekiel is very specific in his revenge. He wants every single thing, <laughs> whether it moves or not, to die. And the Hebrews' livestock are unharmed. <laughs> so then come the boils, and Yahweh warns of another plague. I will send the full force of my plagues against you and your officials and your people. This is Exodus. Sure reads like his diary. Same anger and thirst for revenge. Okay, so I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in all of the earth. Identical. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go? Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. The plague of hail, thunderous hail, destruction, the worst, again, it's the worst and greatest ever. Everybody dies, people and animals. And let me quote, it beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. 
How do you like them apples, Pharaoh? And then the Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron again. He is humiliated. This time I have sinned, he said to them. Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to Yahweh, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to Yahweh. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail. And then Moses does exactly that. In the rain, no longer pour down on the land. When the Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their heart. <laughs> Somehow, <laughs> even though I knew that this was coming, I still can't believe it. I'm in shock. Flip-flopping once more, going back on his word, no matter what. He has no shame and no honor, no dignity. And all of Egypt will pay the price for it. Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and Yahweh brought an easter wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all of Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all of the ground until it was black. Covering all of the land until it was black. That also sounds like the sight of the Babylonian horde covering the land like a shadow. They devoured all that was left after the hail. Everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on a tree or a plant in all of the land of Egypt. The Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh, your God, and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to Yahweh your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Ay, 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 you wouldn't believe it. Even after this seventh and final plague, the Pharaoh pathetically tries to renegotiate the deal. But Yahweh stands his ground. And then it says, the Pharaoh said to him, supposedly Moses, I think it's a Haron or, you know, Tzadok. Get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. Then Moses replied, You have spoken rightly. I will never see your face again. Boom. Mic drop. So I lost count of the number of times the Pharaoh proved to be completely unreliable, both in real life and in the epic of the Exodus plagues. And since the Pharaoh is actually maybe even more fickle than he is vain, you could argue he's more Pharaoh than Nebuchadnezzar. 
I said repeatedly on this podcast that Exodus has nothing to do with Egypt, and I proclaimed it and the Pharaoh not guilty. But in light of all of this, we have no choice but to overturn our decision. It turns out Egypt has a lot to do with Egypt. <laughs> and the Pharaoh is inspired by real-life pharaohs, mostly Necho, who was the most unreliable of them all, and it was him being a walking stick made of reed that got Ezekiel into the Babylonian captivity. And by killing Josiah, he triggered the whole chain of events that led to the end of the Hebrew land. So Ezekiel and the Hebrews had the best of reasons to fantasize about Yahweh destroying Egypt. The Hebrews relied on them. They had a deal. Tens of thousands of lives, if not more, were destroyed in one way or another because the Pharaoh and Egypt are fickle. So the verdict is in. Egypt and the Pharaoh, guilty. Literature, again, is not math, so it cannot be proven that when Ezekiel came up with a fictional character of a fickle pharaoh, he was thinking about the real-life fickle pharaoh that helped destroy his life, his people, and his land. It just makes sense that when Ezekiel writes about a fickle pharaoh, he would think about the fickle pharaoh that destroyed his life. But on top of all of this, all of the evidence, quote-unquote, for me personally, there's also the gut test. So in recent weeks, as you can imagine, I've read Ezekiel's story of the plagues many, many, many times. And it was never as engaging for me as it was when I was reading it to you now in English. Because the episode got us into the right mood, the right mindset, and everything just hit home. It clicked. Everything made sense. The descriptions of the destruction of Egypt that used to be tiresome or uncomfortable, now they were... Schadenfreude. And the recurring hardening of the heart <laughs> turned from annoying to a highlight. It got me every single time. <laughs> so we immersed ourselves in the context of the story of the plagues by Ezekiel. And as a result, the story became infinitely better. And that cannot be an accident, a coincidence. Before preparing for this episode, of course I thought that Ezekiel's plague story was a great story. A great story. But now I think it's a masterpiece. And masterpieces are never made by accident. 
be they fiction, sculptures, or paintings. Uh, oops, I tripped, and here's a fantastic sculpture. <laughs> I don't know, maybe you could argue that Ezekiel was trying to write a worse story, and it just by accident becomes better when you learn about Ezekiel's world. Okay. I think he was trying to write the best story he could, and that it was inspired by his world. And I'm starting to amend my opinion of Ezekiel. I don't think anymore that he lived a sad life without any appreciation. No. With all these new pieces, I think that the picture that is emerging is of two Ezekiels, before and after. The first Ezekiel was a priest and a prophet. The job of the priest is to worship his God with his community. And by Ezekiel's accounts, he failed at that miserably. That made him very miserable. And the job of a prophet is to predict the future. And now that we read his prophecies, how the Egyptians would be taken captive and their land would be empty for 40 years, I think it's pretty clear Ezekiel was as bad at being a prophet as he was at being a priest. And hence I deduced his life was a sad life, that he felt a failure, that he was miserable. But there was one thing that Ezekiel was incredibly good at. And that's writing. I mean, Ezekiel has to be considered among the all-time greats. The original Exodus, the plagues, come on. Whether you put him as number one in the all-time greatest writers list, or number ten, or whatever it is, that's down to a matter of taste and personal preferences. He belongs in that list. And to produce the epic story of the plagues, not to mention the dozens of stories that are waiting for us and all the endless roaming in the desert, this is a lifetime of work. And that requires patronage, it means that you are part of the elite, the captive Hebrew elite in Babylonia. So Ezekiel writes in his book slash diary how the Hebrew workers disrespected him. And he also mentions the exiled boy King Jehoiachin in the opening of his book, which is a clear nod that he is part of the Hebrew elites who revered Jehoiachin. And Ezekiel also writes that his texts would be kept in the Hebrew annals in Babylonia. Which also means he was part of the elite, since these were their annals. The Hebrew workers didn't keep annals, they were working. So all of this means to me that at one point Ezekiel's considerable talents were recognized. And his life changed. The first Ezekiel was no more. And in came the second Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel the writer. I think he was commissioned to be a writer in his community, his new community, the captive Hebrew elites, and their comfy lives. And Ezekiel wrote for 25 years. So he probably lived those 25 years as a respected writer in his community. His epic play story is an all-time masterpiece. Now that all its layers are revealed. Having this story be both about Babylonia and Egypt, both empires, and both about Nebuchadnezzar and Necho, the two kings, one a vain tyrant and the other a weak and unreliable king, that must have wowed the audience. His story transported the audience into a world where their desire for respect and revenge was made real. And in this fantasy world, mm, we Hebrews are the ones who knock. Now we will destroy everything and kill everybody. So, what did we learn in this episode? I think we learned that Hebrew stories that survived to this day have survived first and foremost because they were great literature. Audiences loved them and wanted to listen to them. It had to have been a communal affair. With periodical readings of the Epic of Exodus by Yechezkel. Of course you would keep this story. Ezekiel died in the mid-500s BCE. In subsequent centuries, his story was edited, cut into pieces and attached to other stories written much later about Egypt and the captivity. And Ezekiel's original concept of a revenge fantasy against Babylonia and Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar and Necho, was buried by an avalanche of editing. And also buried in editing was the original name Ezekiel gave to his stories of the plagues. The title of the plagues, Hamakot, we already know that that came much later. And that's not written as such in the Bible. The whole narrative in Egypt is now in the book of Exodus, which in Hebrew is called Shmot. But that's just because the book starts with Ve'ele Shmot, and these are the names. So that's not the original name. Exodus is actually an older name than Shmot. But Ezekiel didn't write about an exodus because his story was about worshipping Yahweh in the desert and exacting revenge. There was no home 
to go back to for Ezekiel. His home was destroyed. I think Exodus was the name given in Persian times after Ezekiel had died. So what could have been the name of the original story Yechezkel wrote that we know today as the plagues? So here's my theory. When Ezekiel, in his book, talks about death and destruction enacted by Yahweh's awesome powers, he uses the word Shfatim. Shfatim. The root Shafat means to judge. So Shfatim is translated as judgments. It's not a proper translation. It doesn't convey the violence and the chaos in the word Shfatim. It's not just judgments. It's violent judgments that create chaos. It's punishment. So I think a better translation for Shfatim that is also simple is violent judgments. I think the original name of the story was the violent judgments. Hashfatim. Ezekiel uses the term Shfatim to talk about how Yahweh punished the Hebrews with death and destruction, how he punished its neighbors with death and destruction, and also in his prophecies, prophecies about Egypt suffering death and destruction that I read from earlier. He says, Ve'asiti Shfatim be'mitzrayim ve'yadu that's in the book of Yechezkel. And I have passed violent judgments on Egypt so that they may know I am Yahweh. Again in the book of Yechezkel, this sounds like a line that could be in Exodus. And I have passed violent judgments on Egypt so that they may know I am Yahweh. I think the original name was Shfatim. And all these Shfatim that Yahweh passed on all of Israel's neighbors and enemies, Ezekiel turned that into fiction. Fantastic. Every time I think I have Ezekiel figured out, he surprises me. I constantly underestimate him. I apologize. Ezekiel is just was so good at writing anxious characters living through a time of extraordinary devastation and uncertainty and feeling powerless and helplessness in the face of force majeure. And he is so good at conveying strong emotions that it feels as if it's all him. And I should have given him more credit that it's just a part of him. And it just comes naturally to him to write anxiousness in a palpable way because he is anxious. Doesn't mean that he's always anxious and always miserable. That's just how he writes. That's what he puts into his story. Because to write all of this and to write so much, 
You can't be anxious all the time. <laughs> you have to be very, very competent and good at your job as a writer. You have to be good at dealing with the world and functioning in the world. So Ezekiel surely led a good life. I think he was fantastic. And I apologize again, Ezekiel. Yechizkel, slicha. So, in the next episode, we'll go over Ezra's version of the judgments, the violent judgments. And we'll see again how the personal perspective of the writer is embedded into his narrative. There will be no back and forths with the Pharaoh, no anxiousness, no fickleness or surprises, no tension. There will be a list of judgments. <laughs> a list may sound boring, but it's anything but boring. You know, some people are just so good at writing lists. Ezra is great at writing lists. <laughs> but that's not what makes his version great. So Ezekiel was, as I said, a master at conveying strong emotions. And he was also an originalist. We have to give him credit for that. But Ezra, among other things, he excelled at describing sorcery. And fantasy. So I still had to dig in, obviously, to prepare for the episode. But my first impressions are that how he describes the destruction. It's not carnage like for Ezekiel. It feels like a horror movie. And while being at the same time like a duel from a western or a samurai movie. Like a magical face-off. Him against magicians. It's great. I can't wait to get into it. There's a bonus. We'll also get a kick out of the differences between Ezekiel's version and Ezra's version. So that's coming in two weeks in episode 60. I would like to thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to follow the podcast wherever you're listening to this from. And I would like to thank the members of the tribe for being part of the tribe on patreon.com slash biblicalproportions. Thank you. I'm Bill Kidron. Bye.